Acts of the Apostles. We've got to go really fast tonight and cover a lot of stuff. So we've only gotten through two chapters in three classes. That's not too good. So we're going to get through three chapters in one class tonight. And how are we going to do that? How many of you have been reading ahead? A few of you. All right, so if you that have been reading ahead, I'm sorry, but we're going to do a little bit of reading. It's good to read it twice anyways. So we're going to do a lot of reading. I'm going to make very little comment, except when we get to those few points that I have to make comments about, and then we'll spend probably most of the class, and then we'll get through the material. So chapter 3, verse 1. Nina, you want to read that for us? chapter 2, we heard about the uh, breaking of bread and prayer in the homes of the disciples of Christ. And yet they're still going to the temple and the synagogue to pray. And so in the early years of the church, they struggle with this identity a little bit. Of, were they still supposed to be going to the temple and performing the sacrifices? Were they still supposed to be following the Mosaic law? And what about the Gentiles coming into the church? What do we do with them? So this question starts to heat up here, and we just get a little introduction. And that yes, this is—they're still performing their daily rituals in the temple as Christians, as followers of Christ. Okay, and so we'll see that as the tension builds all the way to chapter 15, where we get you know, finally the church, the first church council, where they come together and say, so "What are we going to do about this question? Are we to go to the temple? Are we to sacrifice? Are we to circumcise? All of these things." Okay. So, all right, Nina, go ahead. When he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked for alms. But Peter looked intently at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. He paid attention to them, expecting to receive something from them. Peter said, I have neither silver nor gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, rise and walk. Then Peter took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles grew strong. He leaped up, stood, and walked around, and went into the temple with them walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the one who used to sit begging at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with amazement and astonishment at what had happened to him. What do you guys have to say about that? I know you don't, maybe you're going to let say something, but what do you guys have to say about that? It's a miracle. Heavy duty, man. It's a miracle. Wow. <laughs> Great. Let's keep reading. <laughs> Must have had the faith of a mustard seed. <laughs> no, Nina, that's not what I want you to say about that. <laughs> I want you to stop and think about it. This verse has taught me, and I and I must have spent an hour or more this morning, or actually the last couple of days, probably many hours, just thinking about it and what it must have been like for. Peter and for John, and also for this other guy. First of all, I mean, we read over these things, these miracles, and we just slide right on by them. And we have to slow down and start to kind of imagine what had taken place. I talked to you guys about that before, that Luke intends us to be there, to see this happen. Not only to see it happen, but to stand in the place of the apostles, and to stand in the place of the paralytic man, and see it happen. Imagine how it must have been. What would it have been like? 
to be, he's like 46 years old, laying there. He's been laying all his life. What it would have felt like for your ankles to all of a sudden, and you have power to stand for the first time in your life. What would it have been like for the apostles? Read us again those couple of verses. Was this the first? Yeah. This is the first miracle that occurs in Acts of the Apostles. Right? So Jesus has been doing all these things. But remember what did Jesus say? Greater signs than this you will do. And now those are starting to occur. Okay? Go back, Nina, and read us from verse uh, uh, 3. When he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked for alms. But Peter looked intently at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. He paid attention to them, expecting to receive something from them. Peter said, I have neither silver nor gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, rise and walk. Okay. Could you imagine? It's not like it's not like you know Peter and John Jesus. Can I do this? They just walked up to a guy like Lewis here, and they just said, "Look at me, Lewis. Walk in the name of Jesus." And he stood up and walked. I know it sounded like a Protestant preacher there. But can you imagine what kind of faith that must have required? I was at a wedding this weekend, and the priest was talking to the um, to the wedding couple, and he was telling them to live an extraordinary life together. And he said, and he said to them, walk on water. Why not? Maybe it'll happen. Maybe it'll work. And I was sitting, I was serving the liturgy, and I thought, yeah. what was that like for Jesus or Peter to walk on water? Not, it wasn't on a negative, like Peter struggling for faith. But could you imagine taking a step on water and you don't sink? Like, I mean, it's just a euphoria of it happening would have been out of control. Like, just, you know? Or would it have been like for Lazarus to hear God speak to him while he's dead and say, stand up, rise, come out of the tomb. And for him to stand up and look down and all his claws are binding him. We have to start to read these stories and slow down and, and start to appreciate what's going on before us. I don't have some great commentary by the church father on this, but just our imagination is half of reading the scriptures properly as Catholics. To slow down and imagine what it's like to be standing there and having this take place in front of you. We could, I mean, you could meditate on it for the rest of your life. What was it like for the people standing there watching this take place? Okay. Go ahead, Nina. Well, more what was it like for Peter? Because, I mean, can you imagine? Here's a guy who was sinking in the water. And then, and then all, I mean, it must be something, you know, to the first, the first time he's done something like that, to have the guts to say, you know, get up and walk. I mean, right. he doesn't know what's going to happen. Yeah. I mean, look at he just said Peter directed his gaze at him with John and said, Look at us. Imagine what that would have What if something hadn't happened when yeah. he said that? The whole church would have been. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How many of us have the faith to do that? To walk up to somebody and to have such faith to have God literally work through our hands to accomplish his will. Not doing a freak out and go telling everybody to stand up and rise from the dead. 
But when the saints did things like that, there was something about them where there was no doubt what was going to take place. Okay? We have, we have fear of uh, going and talking to our neighbors or our friends about Jesus Christ and about our faith and about being Catholic and all that stuff. Look at this guy. Right? How much easier it is just to walk up to somebody and, and talk to them about Christ. I mean, I'm the same way. I was at Costco the other day and I was buying the wine and cheese. He says, the guy says, you have a party? I said, no, I'm having a Bible study. <laughs> really? And uh, I was kind of trying to sort of start a conversation. It didn't happen, but I wish I just grabbed him and said, why don't you come to the Bible study with me tonight? And uh, it's at 7.30 and uh, I'll tell you where it's at. So, why not? What's going to hurt when I see the guy again? So as we're going to start to see that the apostles understand very well that what they have received is what I've been harping on this whole time, is a real participation in the life of God. And now they are literally the incarnation of God on earth through Jesus Christ. Okay, and we're going to see that happen again and again. Keep reading, you know, because it, it gets even, they, they explain themselves. Go ahead. What verse? Uh, verse 11. As he clung to Peter and John, all the people hurried and made him towards them in the portico called Solomon's portico. When Peter saw this, he addressed the people, You Israelites, why are you amazed at this? And why do you look so intently at us, as if we had made him walk by our own power or piety? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our ancestors, has glorified servant Jesus, whom he handed over and denied in Pilate's presence when he had decided to release him. You denied the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. The author of life you put to death, but God raised him from the dead. Of this we are witnesses. And by faith in his name, this man, whom you see and know, his name has made strong. And the faith that comes through has given him his perfect health in the presence of all So uh, just a quick comment on that whole section. It's just that they're full re fully realizing that it was, it, I mean, who healed the guy? Jesus. Was it just Jesus? Peter. Yeah. I mean, it was Jesus that healed, but Peter healed him. But it's fully Jesus that healed. Okay? And we're going to get this interesting thing where we have a man doing something, but God's doing it. Okay? It's more than Jesus. He's telling him it's their guy. Yeah. Isaac, Abraham, Jacob. That's right. Same yeah. God, you worship. That's the same God. Right. As we've been saying all, all along here, every time they go and they give a defense for who Christ is, they constantly go back to the Old Testament and say, guys, you should have seen this. And if you didn't see it then, see it now. Because I'm going to explain it to you. And they go back. And which, that happens with St. With Stephen, where he just all goes all the way back to the beginning and starts telling the whole Old Testament again. It takes him like three chapters. And he just goes through all the workings of God in the Old Testament. And finally he says, and then we get to Jesus, who all these guys pointed to. All everything I've been saying is it's about Jesus. Right? So all of the Old Testament, and it also points to who Luke is most likely writing to, is a Jewish community. And that's why in Acts of the Apostles we get this tension between the Gentiles coming in and the Jews that are already in. Right? What do we do? What do we do? These guys aren't circumcised. Or what do we do about eating with them? So there's the tension there, and especially in light of when this is being written. 
Okay, because Paul and Peter have been arrested. They're in Jerusalem. The uh, persecution of the church is full blown. And there's probably questions going on within the community. Uh, are we really following the right thing or not? Because it doesn't look so good right now. Our two leaders, Peter and Paul, are in chains in a foreign country. Okay, so this is being written kind of in that, with that perspective. Notice that every time he goes and gives a defense of who Jesus is, he doesn't say, well, Abraham was this guy back whenever, and he was a, patri- a Jewish patriarch. No, he just takes it for, for granted that you know. Okay, and you get that in verse 13. The God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorify his servant Jesus. Okay? You know, is the inference here that if you can't do these things... Don't have total faith. No, because God chooses to use us for His own, for his, you know, at, at certain times in certain ways. Okay. The question is when He wants us to do something. When He's ready for us to be used, are we ready? Because it's not like you know you're laying in bed at three o'clock in the morning. Instead, you should be down like in front of uh, Walmart, you know, grabbing people from their cars and baptizing them, right? <laughs> And there's a time and a place for everything. But like that guy at the grocery store at, at Costco, I was in his line, I'm sure. I was standing in that line behind him because God wanted me to be standing in that line behind him. But I wasn't quite ready. Right? Or maybe I was a little bit too tired, you know, and thinking, oh, i got to teach all night tonight. I don't want to go home. No, so we always have to be ready, you know. But sure, if God is wants to use you and you're not ready, then sure, it's... It, you haven't opened your heart to him. So anytime we see that struggle in ourselves, you know, then I'd say that's our time for repentance and conversion. So, Lord, use me. I, I will be here. I promise. I continue to work to open my life more fully. You know? I was going to say, sometimes I think we, we're not there to plant a tree. We're there to plant a seed. And you planted a seed. Someone's like, gosh, this is like a sort of normal guy. And he's going to do a Bible study. And I thought that was a woman's thing, you know. Right. And, and, you know, so we, we inspire people. It's a woman's thing. Well, anyway, it's not. But, I mean, uh, it could be viewed that way. It's funny because Beth used to go to my Bible studies at Christmas and it'd be like all girls. And the guys, you know, because they know this stuff's out, you know. But I know it's real. Anyways, all right, all right. Let's keep going. Where are we at? Verse 17? Yeah. yeah. yeah we got to keep going. Just go. Now I know, brothers, that you actually have a curses. just as your leaders did. But God has thus brought to fulfillment what he had announced beforehand through the mouth of all the prophets that his Messiah would suffer. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be wiped away, and that the Lord may grant you times of refreshment and send you the Messiah already appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the times of universal restoration which God spoke through the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. Okay. St. John Chrysostom says, St. Peter tells them that Christ's death was a consequence of God's will and decree. You can see how incomprehensible and profound God's design is. It was not just one, but all the prophets who foretold this mystery. Yet although the Jews had been, without knowing it, the cause of Jesus' death, that death had been determined by the wisdom and will of God, who used the malice of the Jews to fulfill his designs. The apostle does not say, although the prophets foretold this death and you acted out of ignorance, do not think you are entirely free from, from blame. Peter speaks to them gently. Repent and turn again. To what end? That your sins may be blotted out, not only your murder, but all the stains of your soul. Okay? Keep going. For Moses said, a prophet like me 
will the Lord, your God, raise up for you from amongst your king, kinsmen, from among, raise up for you from among your own kinsmen. To him you shall listen in all that he may say to you. Everyone who does not listen to that prophet will be cut off from the people. Moreover, all the prophets who spoke from Samuel and those afterwards also announced these days. You are the children of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your ancestors when he said to Abraham, in your offspring, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. For you first, God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning each of you from your evil ways. Okay, so Jesus is being referred to, well, first of all, in reference to who? In that text that you just read. Yeah, Moses, who prophesied what? Sorry, prophet. Yeah, in what, in what text? Do you remember? Exodus. No? Deuteronomy 18. We've looked at it 600 times. Deuteronomy 18. Turn there real quick. We'll just look at it again. Just so you can figure out where it's on our page. Keep your hand in Acts. We can go back quickly. Deuteronomy 18. This is uh, Moses' farewell address to the Jews, or part of his farewell address to the Jews. Deuteronomy chapter 18. What's that? 18 verse 15, yes. The Lord, you there? The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brethren. Him you shall heed, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire anymore, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, They have rightly said all that they have spoken. I will raise up to them a prophet like you from among their brethren, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not heed to, to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. So notice what, what Peter is doing here as he's speaking. He's saying... Jesus Christ fulfills Deuteronomy chapter 18. And therefore, you have a choice, friends. You either accept his word, or God will require it of you. They're, they're, they're convincing, yes, but at the same time, they're kind of throwing down the gauntlet at him. Saying, you have a choice, it's one or the other. If you deny him, you deny Moses. Okay? Further, if, it's, if Jesus is to be a prophet like Moses, then what's going to happen? What's going to happen? Don't just say, oh, that's nice that he's a prophet like Moses. What's that mean? Oh, he's human, okay, all right, yeah. He gives us the law. He, okay, good, he gives us the law. So if Moses gave us the law, Jesus is going to give us the new law. What else? Leads us out of, out of Egypt. Yeah, he leads us out of. What's that? Help us to get to the promised land. Yeah, so he leads us out of slavery. Okay, and he brings us to the promised land. Helps us cross the desert of this life, if you will. Okay, what else? What's that? Yeah, gives the commandments. Right. He leads Israel. All those things. He leads them through the Red Sea. Just as our Lord leads us through the waters of baptism. Okay? Whatever you could say about Moses, see if you can apply it to Christ. Because this isn't the only time that they, they look back to this prophecy. They've already done it back in, uh, in, in the Gospel of John. 
Okay? And continually here in Acts of the Apostles, our Lord is being shown as the new Moses. Okay? If they reject him, they're going to stay in their slavery to sin. They're going to be oppressed by a foreign ruler. Okay? They're going to worship false idols. All of those things. Okay? Did you have a question? No, somebody raised your hand. the same here. Uh, you raised up a prophet among you. Yeah. And he's not saying son of God. What's a prophet? The anointed Christ. What's a prophet? Reveals the truth. Yeah. The prophet's not just simply, we always think of a prophet as someone who tell, foretells the future. A prophet is simply someone who speaks the words of God to the world. And Jesus very much did that, didn't he? He is a prophet. He's more than a prophet, but he is a prophet. Yeah. Well, he's much more than an earthly king, too, but he is an earthly king. Right? He's much more than a human being, but he is a human being. What's that? Are we interpreting beyond what he's saying? Beyond what he's saying in that text? Uh, yeah, because I have other texts to work off. Right? We know from John 1.1 1, 1 that Jesus is also God from all eternity. Okay? And from other texts in the scriptures. So there's other texts we work on to know who Jesus is. But he's definitely making this identification in Deuteronomy 18. Just like we've seen all these identifications of Christ as the son of David. He's much more than just the son of David. Right? But he is that. Because if he's the son of David, what does he do? He builds the temple. He builds the house of God, as we're going to see. Okay, so there's all these Old Testament references. Yeah, they're imperfect, but they're all they're also they are prophecies of it. Okay? Alright, where are we? Nina? Where are we? Chapter four. Chapter four, okay. Oh, and actually, I have to say something quickly about Genesis uh, chapter 12 there. And just, again, that reference back to Genesis about through, to Abraham, that through him all the nations will be blessed. And so, again, the apostles are interpreting that in light of Christ now. That when that prophecy was given back in chapter 12 of Genesis, that it's now fulfilled in Christ. And how is it fulfilled? How are all the nations blessed now? Think Acts of the Apostles. What's taking place? How is it that all the nations are blessed? By the outpouring of the Spirit. Yeah. All the nations have come together on Pentecost, and now the Spirit has been poured out upon them. And we're going to find they're going to about they're about to. We're on the edge of the apostles taking off out of Jerusalem and going to the four corners of the world to spread the message of Christ to call all peoples. Okay? So again, don't just read over that text. What does it mean? Okay, and how does it fit into the context of what's going on here and what I know is about to come in Acts of the Apostles? Okay? Alright, chapter 4, verse 1. While they were still speaking to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple guard, and the Sadducees confronted them, disturbed that they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day it was already evening. But many of those who heard the word came to believe, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. Okay, so we had the first arrest taking place. Again, what was it like for Peter and John to be thrown into jail at that time? What do you think they were thinking? What do you think they were thinking? Yeah, the last time that they entered in the temple and got themselves in a whole bunch of trouble was when Jesus was crucified. Things aren't looking too good. 
okay? They spent an entire night in the jail thinking, meditating upon what they were going through right then. Look back at John chapter 15. I'm going to do this twice. We're going to look back at two other texts which give us something that I think um, our Lord would have, or, or uh, Peter and John would have been possibly running through their minds while they're sitting there in jail. Uh, 15, verse, chapter 15, verse 18. Carrie, you want to read that for us? The world hates you. Be aware that it hated me before it hated you. If you belong to the world, the world would love you as its own. Because you do not belong to the world, therefore the world hates you. But I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. Servants are not greater than their master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But they will do all these things to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sinned. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not have sinned. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. It was to fulfill the word that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. So on. Okay. So, again, what was it like for them to be in the jail, meditating upon the words of our Lord? We're going to look at one of their texts in Matthew that is a similar reference about their, their union with Christ. Okay, they must have been meditating upon these texts okay, as they're sitting in the dungeon, not knowing what's going to happen to them. Go back to Acts. Again, we're chapter 4, verse, we're going to look at verse 1 again. And the people were speaking, and as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. Well, why would they be bothered they were proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead? Yeah? Wait, 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 say it again? Sadducees, they don't believe in the resurrection. Yeah, exactly. Who, again, when you're reading the text, who is asking the question and who is being asked? All the time in these conversations, it's going to be about one topic. Okay, and everything else is going to be related to it, and that is that Jesus is risen from the dead. Okay? The men here, or part of the men here that, that go and arrest them, are the Sadducees. And the Sadducees had as their identity that they rejected the resurrection of the dead. Okay? I'll read you a little um, little text about them. The Sadducees denied the doctrine of the resurrection. By the first century, resurrection had functioned for a long time as a symbol and metaphor for the total reconstitution of Israel. Although the first century aristocrats were in one sense, oh, I got it, I got I skipped a sentence, hold on. By the first century, the resurrection had functioned for a long time as a symbol and metaphor for a total reconstitution of Israel. The return from Babylon and the final redemptions uh, Ezekiel spoke of the return in terms of Israel being awakened out of the grave. The Maccabean martyrs, as presented in 2 Maccabees, spoke of their vindicate, vind, spoke of their own forthcoming resurrection.
flesh in the context of claiming that their God would vindicate his people against the tyrant. Although the first century aristocrats were in one sense the heirs of the Maccabees, whose vindication Second Maccabees envisaged, the boot was now on the other foot. Resurrection in its metaphorical sense of the restitution of a theocratic Israel, possibly under a Messiah, would mean the end of their precarious power. If the Sadducees concentrated for reasons of political necessity on the affairs of the world, they, unlike the poor and marginalized, for whom the hope of restitution had to be projected forwards onto a life to come, may have quite genuinely had less concern for doctrines about the afterlife. Okay? So what are they saying? The Sadducees were the aristocrats of their day. They were ruling, but they were ruling because the Romans allowed them to rule. And because they played the game with Herod and all the things that Herod was doing, if they had ever gone against him, they would have been shut down and the power had been taken from them. Okay? And anybody standing up and claiming the resurrection, in a sense, and especially the resurrection of the Christ, the King, got in the way of their own game that they were playing with Herod and the Romans. Does that make sense? Okay? So keep that in our mind as we're reading about what's going on here. And it'll start to make more sense. Okay. Um, verse 2. Yeah. No, you don't want to read anymore? You're okay. You're reading better. Just keep going. Um, disturbed that they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, since it was already evening. But many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. On the next day, their leaders, elders, and scribes were assembled in Jerusalem with Ananias the high priest, Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and all who were the high priestly class. They brought them into their presence and questioned them. By what power or by what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, answered them, Leaders of the people and elders, if we are being examined today about a good deed done to a cripple, namely, by what means he was saved, then all of you and all the people of Israel should know that it was in the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. In his name this man stands before you healed. He is the stone rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. There is no salvation for anyone else, nor is there any other name under heaven given to the human race by which we are to be saved. Okay, again, it's almost like Peter talking to the, Peter and John talking to the, the guy they're healing. I mean, they just go right for the right for the heart of the issue, right? And they say it is Jesus and Jesus alone. Now we looked at this text in reference to another verse earlier. What was that? Do you remember? Last last class. What's that? Yeah, Joel, but even within Acts, it is Joel. But just turn over one page back to chapter 2, verse 21, and it's a quote from Joel. And it shall be that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And remember, we were talking about that whole thing of Kyrios and Yahweh and the replacement of Yahweh with Kyrios, with Lord, in the Greek text. And here it is that Jesus is identified as the Lord, prophesied in Joel... Okay, Jesus is the Lord prophesied in Joel, but the Lord prophesied in Joel in the Hebrew text was Yahweh. So there's a, a clear 
uh, what do you want to call it, uh, identification of the God of the Old Testament and Jesus Christ. Okay? Further, go back one verse. Verse uh, 11, I think it is. Back one verse. Chapter 4, verse, uh, verse 11. I'll go back. Ch chapter, uh, verse 10 and 11. Go ahead, Nina. Verse 10 and 11. Then all of you and all the people of Israel should know that it was in the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. In his name this man stands before you here. He is the stone rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. Okay. Remember back there in Joel, we talked about the sun darkening and the moon not shining its light and all these apocalyptic images. And what I, had I said to you? Do you remember? Was it about the end of the world necessarily? No. No? Remember we looked back to Joel, and what was the verse that was left off at the end of that quotation from Joel? It's left off in Acts. Some will escape. Yeah, some survivors will take off from Zion. Right? And then God will call all the nations to Jerusalem. Okay? So there's a sense, it seems, in the background, the apostles understand what is, they already understand what's coming in 70 AD. Okay? That Jerusalem will be destroyed. And here we get another identification. First, who, who is the first one to identify Jesus Christ as the cornerstone that, that was rejected by the builders? No. The stone rejected by the builders. He quotes the same exact text. Do you know? What was that? Somebody said it. It's a psalm, yeah, but who's the first one to identify that it's Jesus that that psalm's about? Ah, it's Jesus. In the Gospels, he says that he's the cornerstone which the builders rejected. Okay? And you're right, it is a psalm. Let's go back to that, Psalm 118, real quick. Psalm 118. Keep your hand actually, so you can flip back and forth real quick. Psalm 118. Or Psalm uh, 117 for those that have rejected Second Medical Council. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Peter has the Dewey Greens back there. The whole, whole Bible. So. <laughs> All right, Psalm 118. I used to use that in one time in my life. <laughs> All right, Psalm 118. Psalm 118. We've looked at this text before in other classes. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for He is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Skip to verse 19. Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. You remember where the paralytic got healed? What was it called? Uh, yeah, before the before the beautiful gate. And there's no really, uh, there's no real explanation of what the beautiful gate is, and we're not really sure, except that it's most likely the gate that the Israelites can enter through and into the from the court of the Gentiles and into the court of Israel, where only the clean ones can go. Okay, and here we get this talking about the righteous gate again, and Peter quotes the text. Okay. Uh, verse 20, this is the gate of the Lord, the righteous shall enter through it. I give thanks that thou hast answered me and hast become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we beseech us. Hosanna in Hebrew. Hosanna, we beseech thee, O Lord. O Lord, we beseech thee, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Where else have we heard that? 
Don't call me a pass. <laughs> What's that? Say it louder, I can't hear. Passion Sunday. What, at Mass? No. Oh, yeah, you go. Thank you. Okay. Yeah, when our Lord enters into Jerusalem, this is the text they start to chant. Right? You remember why that is? Yeah. This was the text that was chanted at the Feast of Booths, which was used as the ceremony for the coronation of the king. So when our Lord's riding into Jerusalem, he jumps on the, on the ass just like Solomon did to go get anointed as king. And they start waving the branches. Keep reading. The Lord is God, verse 27, and he has given us light. Bind the festal procession with branches up to the horns of the altar. Sounds like Palm Sunday. They weren't making it up. It was right here in the psalm. They've been celebrating the feast all along, waiting for the Messiah to come, for the anointed one of God. Okay? So it's interesting here that Peter, who's identifying Jesus as the king, goes back and takes a psalm from the coronation of the king. Right? They know that whole psalm by heart. They sing it every year at their highest feast day. Their highest feast day was the Feast of Booths. Okay? Um, this is the stone which was rejected by you builders, but which has become the head of the corner. Back in Acts chapter 4. Back in Acts chapter 4. What does that mean? The stone rejected by the builders. Well, first of all, who are the builders? What are they building? The temple. Yeah. The temple during this time is being built. The time that this text is taking place is the time when the Herodian temple, Herod was rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem. Okay? And who was part of that building? Who was part of the, of the people in charge of making sure it was built right? What do you think? Was the aristocracy, the priests that were in charge of Jerusalem? They're the ones in charge of making sure the temple's being built right. You remember when our Lord comes to Jerusalem, He says, tear down this, destroy this temple, and I will rebuild it in three days. And they say, what? It's taken us 46 years to build this temple. It's their temple. They've built it. And what's Peter saying to them now? You have rejected the cornerstone. What's that mean about their building? It is bound to fall. Uh, is he prophesying the coming, of uh, the coming fall of Jerusalem? Maybe. But he's definitely condemning the temple as it had been built. From Dr. Carroll in his, in his um, collection on his history books. While Augustus was settling the empires, he had settled Rome. Herod was building a new temple in Jerusalem. Herod never really understood the Jewish faith he professed, into which he, his recent ancestors had been brought by compulsion. But he was anxious to demonstrate how splendidly he honored all its outward symbols, and he was a builder. He replaced a smaller structure built by the returned exiles from Babylon in the time of King Darius I with what he claimed to be an exact replica of Solomon's temple, but which actually seems to have been much larger and taller than the original. 
surrounded by a much enlarged outer court and resting upon an immense stone platform, it towered over Jerusalem to a height of no less than 450 feet. From the top of its highest pinnacle to the bottom of the Kedron Valley Canyon directly below the city. Herod's vision of Solomon's famous temple porch was five times the width of the original and dropped sheer for a great distance on three sides. He goes on to quote another historian. The whole structure was a fantastic tour de force and must have presented a most startling appearance, more like a modern skyscraper than any known building of antiquity. No expense was spared in the materials of the structure or its decorations. Josephus gives, us, gives as typical dimensions of a single block, 45 by 6 by 5 cubits. It's a cubit, it's a foot and a half. Okay? So you're talking like what? 60 feet, something like that. Huge, huge. The stone employed was a brilliant white marble. Josephus compared the general aspects of the building seen at a distance to a mountain covered with snow. The east front of the holy place was plated with gold, which reflected the rays of the sun with dazzling splendor. The great folding doors of the holy place were likewise plated with gold, and across them was drawn a magnificent embroidered veil, whose four colors typified the four elements. Over the doorway hung a giant golden vine, replacing that which Aristobulus had given to Pompey, whose clusters were as large as a man. Huge golden grapevine kingler. Can you imagine? Huge. Okay. The apostles go right into that, right in a sense in the shadow of the temple. And they say, guys, you forgot the cornerstone. And not only did you forget the cornerstone, it's now going to be used as a cornerstone to another building. A building very much different is we're going to look at. What, is the, what are the apostles understanding? You have rejected the cornerstone. Look at this. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, but which has become the head of the corner. Notice he applies that condemnation from the Psalms to the ruler standing right before him, saying that psalm was meant for you. They had just completed the working on the temple. Okay? And it has become the head of the corner. Rejected by you, it has become the head of the corner. What building are they talking about? We're going to find out. Okay? Yeah, we're going to keep reading. Verse 13. Nina, go ahead. Observing the boldness of Peter and John, and perceiving them to be uneducated, ordinary men, they were amazed, and they recognized them as the companions of Jesus. Then when they saw the man who had been cured standing there with them, they could say nothing in reply. So they ordered them to leave the Sanhedrin and conferred with one another, saying, What are we to do with these men? Everyone living in Jerusalem knows that a remarkable sign was done through them, and we cannot deny it. But so that may not be spread any further among the people, let us give them a stern warning never again to speak to anyone in this name. So they called them back and ordered them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Peter and John, however, said to them in reply, Whether it is right in the sight of God for us to obey you rather than God, you be the judges. It is impossible for us not to speak about what we have seen and heard. After threatening them further, they released them, finding no way to punish them 
Pope John Paul II comments on this text. He says, Whereas the elders of Israel charged the apostles not to speak about Christ, God, on the other hand, does not allow them to remain silent. In Peter's few sentences, we find a full testimony to the resurrection of the Lord. The word of the living God addressed to men obliges us more than any other human commandment or purpose. This word carries with it the supreme eloquence of truth. It carries the authority of God himself. Peter and the apostles are before the Sanhedrin. They are, they are completely and absolutely certain that God himself has spoken in Christ and has spoken definitely through his cross and resurrection. Peter and the apostles to whom this truth was, was directly given, as also those who in their time received the Holy Spirit, must bear witness to it. I just give you that as another encouragement that you're standing in the grocery line. Right? Don't worry about what you're going to say. As our Lord said, when you stand before, we'll look at it at a time, but as you stand before the court, don't worry about what you're going to say. I'll speak, I'll speak for you. I'll be the one speaking. Don't worry. Okay, these fishermen, without education, without any of that, were able to shut up the whole Sanhedrin, the whole court of Israel, with a few words. Okay? So similarly, we've been given the gift of the Holy Spirit if we have faith to use it. Okay? Go ahead, Amy. For the man on whom the sign of healing has been done was over 40 years old. After their release, they went back to their own people and reported what the chief priests and elders had told them. And when they heard it, they raised their voices to God with one accord and said, Sovereign Lord, maker of heaven and earth, somebody? Yeah, it's God's hand stretching forth. Okay? So we think about that also in relation to the sacraments. I was just talking to, to a gentleman this evening who was we're talking about uh, the church and things. The, the real question when we're talking to those that do not share our faith is whether they can accept that God has shared his life with man or not. If they can accept that, then what is not possible for God to do? And if it's possible for God to do it, then we should expect to see it among men. Is it possible for God to forgive sins? Yeah. Confessions aren't a problem. Is it possible for God to change water into wine? Yeah. Is it possible for God to change wine into blood? Yeah. Then it's possible for a man to stand and say, this is my body, this is my blood. Okay? It is the hand and the mouth of Jesus Christ incarnate in his followers. We're no longer, you know, Sabatino or Edmund or whoever. We are Jesus Christ walking on this earth. 
He will remain with us always, and it is His life we are living now. Okay? Go ahead. As they prayed, the place where they were gathered shook, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. The community of believers was of one mind and heart, and no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they had everything in common. With great power, the apostles bore witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great favor was accorded them all. Okay, so why aren't we communists today? Shouldn't we all be communists? Shouldn't we sell all the things to the church? <coughs> sell it all! Why do you own anything? You own a car. You own a piece of property. You are not followers of Jesus Christ. <coughs> Why do they sell all their things and hold everything in common? Any guesses? Religious yeah, they're really pious. They're really hardcore about their faith. Where's where were they not so much? So, yeah, all of the church in Jerusalem was a religious community. No, they wrote to the Pope and asked for permission to be made uh, Franciscans. No. What's interesting is that the church in Jerusalem, the community in Jerusalem, was the only early Christian community that we know of that did this. In fact, we're going to find out in a few chapters that there's a prophet among them that tells them that there's going to be a famine throughout the whole world. And all the other Christian communities collect money from who? From the faithful, who haven't given all their money to the church. And they send it to the people in Jerusalem who don't have any money anymore because it's all held in common for their relief. Okay, it's the only Christian community. Why? Take a guess. What's unique about the, the community in, in Jerusalem? That's where it all started. What's that? That's where it all started. Yeah, so they're hardcore about Jesus, right? <laughs> yeah. No, that's not the answer. Because they were moving out, as, as we were told yesterday, because of the uh, destruction, upcoming destruction of Jerusalem. Yeah, is it possible that because they knew of the upcoming <laughs> destruction of Jerusalem, they sold their property, they got rid of their houses, because you know what? When it's destroyed, they're going to lose everything. So now they sell everything and have all their possessions and things they can carry in order to get it out of Jerusalem at the right time. In fact, Eusebius tells us that just in 68 AD, just before the destruction of Jerusalem, he says, The whole body of the church at Jerusalem, having been commanded by a divine revelation given to men of approved piety, there before the war, removed from the city and lived in a certain town beyond the Jordan called Pella. Here those who believed in Christ removed from Jerusalem as if holy men had entirely abandoned the royal city itself and the whole land of Judea. And in fact, in Joel, we had that prophecy. There will be survivors that flee. Remember our Lord himself said, when he's not all that apocalyptic language, he says, if you're out in the field, don't go home to get your tunic. Get out of town. Run. He's talking at the end of the world. What am I going to run to? Right? He says it would be difficult for women who I would child during that time. Why? Because they have to flee. It was the only community that held all things in common. And it, right there, when was we see this writing? It's bad. I should have known his, his dates. 260 to 340. Okay? Very early on, 
They knew what the church in Jerusalem had done. And they had gotten out. They weren't part of the great massacre that had happened in Jerusalem. They got out just in time. Yeah, Karen. The point was to liquidate their assets. Then why didn't they maintain them as individuals? Why did they need to hold them in common? I don't know, but that's what they did. I don't know. Yeah. But holding property in common or possessions in common does not make them communists. Right. That's the wealth is controlled by the government. Okay, look, we're out of time. You want to do a little more research on that point? Yeah, come on, Carrie. Be helpful for us next time. All right. Okay, we got to read. Look, if you got to leave, leave. But can you, if we do four minutes, we need to do just one little section and let's see one little thing. We're done. Okay. This is a great story. One of my favorites. Um, okay, verse thirty-two. Right. Yeah, read verse 32, Nina. Go. The community of believers was of one mind and heart, and no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they had everything in common. With great power, the apostles bore witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great favor was accorded them all. There was no needy person among them, for those who owned property or houses would sell them, bring the proceeds of the sale, and put them at the feet of the apostles, and they were distributed to each according to need. Thus Joseph, also named by the apostles Barnabas, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite, a Cypriot by birth, sold a piece of property that he owned, then brought the money and put it at the feet of the apostles. Keep going. A man named Ananias, however, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. He retained for himself with his wife's knowledge some of the purchase price, took the remainder, and put it at the feet of the apostles. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart so that you lie to the Holy Spirit and retain part of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain yours? And when it was sold, was it not still under your control? Why did you contrive this deed? You have lied not to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and a great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men came and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. St. Ephraim says, not only because they stole something and concealed it, but because they did not fear and sought to deceive those in whom the Holy Spirit uh, dwelt, uh, in whom dwelt the Holy Spirit who knows everything. And St. John Chrysostom says, this fault could not have been treated lightly. Like a gangrene, it had to be cut out before it infected the rest of the body. As it is, both the man himself benefits and that he is not left to advance further in wickedness and the rest of the disciples, and that they are more vigilant. Okay? Again, applying that to the Old Testament, we know about all those bloody battles that we've talked about in Canaan, where Israel comes in and takes the land and slaughters people. How can that be? Because God is at war with the devil for mankind, and he will not lose the battle. And if we put our place in our hearts evil, it must be cut out. 
lest we lead all men astray. So you see these things in the scriptures that are they're a violent. Oh, that's just not fair. 2007. God is saving his people and he will do everything in his power to do it. Okay? Next time when we come together, we're going to talk about the church, which is mentioned for the first time here explicitly. Verse 11. Okay? We talk about the church and what that is and its relationship back to the cornerstone and what's taking place among the apostles. Do me a favor. Read. The rest of chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7. Why do I want you to read all that? Because it's a big, long sermon. By a lot of it's a big, long sermon. And we're not going to cover it explicitly because it's going through the Old Testament. We've done that together. So you can read it. It'll be a refresher course for you. And then we're going to skip that big section. Okay, so read all the way up to chapter 8. I'll make a few comments next time. And then we're going to go on from chapter 8 because... We got to get all the way to chapter 15 to the, to the uh, council in Jerusalem. So, okay, let's conclude in prayer. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. St. Luke, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit.